podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Fortsanopoli Cultural Podcast. A podcast about Tanopoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you so much for listening. We've got a jam-packed episode for you today. In part one, we'll review our match on Sunday against Benevento. In part two, we'll check in on how the competition did on match day 24. And in part three, we'll preview our midweek fixture against Sassuolo. So let's start with the game against Benevento. Here's how it went. We have kickoff then. Benevento start this match. Going to the byline. Gets the flick in. There's nobody there though. Nod it towards goal. The shot eventually coming. And then Mertens flicks it with the outside of the boot. And Mertens gives Napoli the lead. Insignia. Insignia inside. Zielinski with a dummy. Zielinski. Zielinski. Goal number two. What a finish from Zielinski. No. It's been ruled out. Not offside, but maybe Insignia was just obstructing the view of the goalkeeper. That's a pity because it was a fine finish indeed. A predatory goal from Dries Mertens on his return to the starting lineup. So 1 0 for Napoli. We're going to with De Pauli. It's Napoli who get the second period underway. Zielinski, nice ball to Insignia. Insignia to the far post, a wonderful ball, and it's crept in. Di Lorenzo is claiming the goal. Politano has stayed down. Napoli to Benevento nil. And Napoli have doubled their lead. Tizia just showed a bit too much of that to Koulibaly, and it's a second yellow. Red card for Koulibaly. Silly foul as Letizia moved in front of him. And Napoli are down to 10 men to the face. But that's the uh, final whistle here at the uh, Maradona Stadium. A comfortable victory for Napoli. As you heard, Napoli won 2-0 on goals from Dries Mertens and Matteo Politano. This was our best performance in a while. We controlled the run of play for the entirety of the first half, and we fully deserved the goal. You did sense that we needed a second, though, especially when Benevento started pushing forward after the break. We had some nervous moments during that stretch, but we managed to push through it. Dries Mertens looked great in his first start since returning from his ankle injury for a second time. Fauzi Gulam also had an excellent match after earning himself a start with his play against Granada. That makes you wonder whether he will feature more prominently for the balance of the season. Our midfield has been much better in the last two games. Piotr Zielinski nearly scored his third golazzo in three games, but it was disallowed for obstruction, and Fabian Ruiz continues to play well since he returned after recovering from COVID. 
Benevento never really threatened, yet for some bizarre reason Gennaro Gattuso did not make any changes until very late in the match. In fact, he didn't make a change until after Kalidou Koulibaly very foolishly picked up a second yellow card. That means he will miss an important midweek match against Sassuolo and will be back to playing Amir Rachmani and Nikola Maksimovic for that match. We'll cover all of that in this review and we'll revisit our three keys to the match, but first let's review the starting lineups. Filippo Inzaghi made three changes compared to our predicted 11. Benevento lined up in a 4-3-3 with Lorenzo Montipo in goal. Federico Barba moved from his usual spot at left back to play alongside Alessandro Tuya at center back. That's not the first time Barba has played center back this season, and we had Luca Caldirola playing there. Instead, Dom Fulon played at left back and Fabio De Paoli started at right back. Pasquale Schiattarella started as the Regista, and Perperim Hatamai and Nicolas Viola completed the three-man midfield. Up top, Gianluca Caprari started on the left wing, Artur Ionita started over Roberto Insigne on the right wing, and Gianluca Lapadula played at striker. For Napoli, Gattuso had one change compared to our predicted 11. He also went back to the 4-2-3-1 formation because of that one change. There were rumors that David Ospina would start in goal, but Alex Meret got the start again. Kalidou Koulibaly and Amir Rachmani started at center back. As expected, Fauzi Goulam started at left back and Giovanni Di Lorenzo started at right back. Timoy Bakayoko and Fabian Ruiz started in the double pivot. Lorenzo Insigne started on the left wing and Matteo Politano started on the right wing. Lorenzo Insigne and Matteo Politano returned to their usual positions at left and right wing respectively. Finally, Piotr Zielinski played in the 10th spot behind Dries Mertens, who got his first start since returning from injury. So those were the starting lineups. Next, let's revisit our three keys to the match. The first key to the match was that we needed to play from the opening kickoff rather than waiting until we fell behind. We definitely achieved this goal. We completely dominated the first half. Benevento really struggled to sustain any type of possession. When they did get the ball, we pressed and they resorted to the long ball, with Lapadula basically playing on an island up top. That often resulted in the ball being returned right back to us. There was a bit of a stretch at the start of the second half where Benevento started pushing forward for an equalizer and we were forced to defend a little bit. I think we were particularly fortunate on one play where we got caught with a mismatch with Insigne marking Yonita in the area. Thankfully nothing came of it which is probably because we were playing against Benevento and not against a stronger team. We saw what happened when we had a mismatch like that against Atalanta. I think we could have handled that stretch a bit better, namely by making some changes, but I'll come back to that point in just a bit. The second key to the match was that we needed to break down Benevento's low block. In our preview, we talked about three ways to do this. The first was to involve our fullbacks without getting caught on the counterattack. I thought both the Lorenzo and Gulam got forward early and often. Early in the match, we were crossing the ball in the air, which was never going to work with Mertens playing as striker but we quickly adapted. Both of our fullbacks and our midfielders were looking to cut the ball back to the top of the box, and even though we didn't score doing that, we certainly created a lot of chances with that approach. The second and third ways to break down the low block were related. We needed a lot of movement and creativity, particularly in the middle of the park. I thought we did this really well, and I think Mertens was the catalyst for a lot of it. 
this is a good spot to talk about Mertens for a minute. I was surprised to see him starting, but man am I glad that he did. He does so many things well. He obviously does the big things well, like scoring goals. Speaking of creativity, that goal was the perfect example of his creative genius. Only a true striker would attempt a shot with the outside of his boot like he did, and very few of them would actually score. Mertens dedicated that goal to his good friend Tommy Starr, Tommaso Starace. Mertens gave him a big hug after the goal. Another example of his creativity was the attempt he made on the right side of the box about midway through the first half where he nearly caught Montipo off his line, but the shot went just over the bar. Again, most players wouldn't have even seen that opening, let alone come that close to scoring. Similarly, early in the second half, he tried to chip Montipo after Benevento conceded possession in their own half, but it just didn't come off. But Mertens also does the little things really well, and a lot of that has to do with his experience and with his chemistry with certain players on this team. Our friend Dom does a great job breaking down Napoli's tactics on his YouTube show Napoli Talk. If you don't already follow Dom, check out his show and give it a like and a subscribe. Amongst other things, Dom pointed out a couple of things that I noticed during this match as well. One thing we saw Mertens do a couple of times was overlap Insignia when he had the ball. That pulls the defenders away from Insignia and opens up the shot when he cuts into his right foot. Another thing we saw him do was drop back to cover for Gulam when he got forward and Mertens wasn't part of the play. Again, it's subtle, but if Gulam gets caught, we've got a man back to help defend the counterattack. Finally, we would see Mertens drop into the half space to give his midfielders and his defenders another option and then lay the ball off to his midfielders or his wingers. We saw the chemistry with Mertens and Insignia often interchanging positions, which again makes them very difficult to mark. And when he does drop back, it's a huge help to Fabian and Zelinski, who can then play off Mertens and either return the ball through to him in the middle of the field or play the ball out wide to stretch the play and open up the cross or the cutback. By the way, I thought Fabian had another really good performance. He was always there to support his wingers, he played quick passes, and he had a few attempts at goal. Even though he didn't score, I have absolutely no problem with him shooting from the top of the box. We made a move early in the match, in the 5th minute, that I think captured all of these points in one play. The Lorenzo played the ball to Politano on the right wing. He played a one-touch pass to Zelinski, who then played a one-touch pass to send Fabian down the right wing. Fabian cut the ball back to the top of the box where Mertens had dropped to receive the pass. Mertens teed the ball up for Zelinski and he got the shot off, but it was blocked. Even though we ultimately didn't score on that play, I think if we continue to play that way, we will create plenty of chances and hopefully score plenty of goals. The final key to the match was that we needed to keep a clean sheet. The match finished 2-0, so we obviously achieved this goal. I mentioned in the lineup section that the early reports had David Ospina starting in goal. I don't think there's any need to rush him back. Meret has been playing well, and I think he can only get better with consistent playing time. Unfortunately, I do think Ospina is Gattuso's preferred option, and in fairness, Ospina has been very good too. I know this alternating goalkeeper situation is not ideal, and in fact it's rather unusual, but here's why I think Gattuso is doing it. I think he probably wants to play Ospina most of the time, because right now I do think Ospina is slightly better than Meret. At the very least, they're even, but Ospina has more experience. I actually don't think it has anything to do with footwork anymore. However, I think Gattuso also recognizes that Ospina is only a short-term option, while Meret is the plan for the future. So he has to play Meret every once in a while, otherwise 
he may ask for a move. And not only that, if we don't play Meret, his value will decrease, so if he were to ask for a move, we wouldn't get top dollar for him. What I suspect will happen is Gattuso will not be renewed at the end of the season, and a new coach will come in and make Meret the number one again. Anyhow, back to the game, even though Meret wasn't terribly busy, he did make some important plays, he made a good save on Depauli in the 38th minute, Benevento didn't even get a sniff of the goal before that chance, so that was a big save for a cold goalkeeper. He also did well on the ensuing corner kick, which was curling directly on target, but Meret pushed it over the bar. So Meret got the job done when he was called upon. Credit to Rafa Rispo from Far From Vesuvius and the rant he pointed out on Twitter that this was our fourth consecutive clean sheet at the Maradona. So we achieved all three of our keys to the match, and therefore it was no surprise that we walked away with the win. Moving on, I want to address three more points before I wrap up this review. The first is that Gattuso didn't make any changes until very late in this match. Now look, before I criticize Gattuso, which we all love to do lately, I think it's only right that we give him some credit as well. Yes, Benevento are a team that we should beat every time, but we do still have a lot of injuries and he did make the decision to start Rachmani, Gulam, and Mertens. That said, for the life of me, I don't understand why Gattuso did not make any changes until after Koulibaly picked up the red card. And I'm not suggesting that he should have taken Koulibaly out, I actually don't think he should have. When we had Daniel Russo on Fortinopoli Worldwide, we talked about why you should not replace your center backs. I know Koulibaly was on a yellow card, but frankly that doesn't matter, especially for an experienced center back like him. That was just a really foolish play by Koulibaly, and to be honest, I don't think it was a malicious challenge, I think it was just clumsy, but under no circumstances should you commit a foul in the opposition's corner with a two-goal lead and only 10 minutes to play. So that's not on Gattuso, that's on Koulibaly, which means he will miss the match against Sassuolo. We'll talk more about that in part 3. What is on Gattuso is leaving Dries Mertens on until the 82nd minute. There is absolutely no reason why a player who just came back from such a long layoff with an ankle injury should be left in in that situation. I nearly had a heart attack when Mertens went down in the second half holding his ankle. I get that Gattuso doesn't want to play the Primavera players and neither would I, but we had Elmas available on the bench. Likewise, I get not wanting to rush Diego Deme back, but Stanislav Lobotka easily could have replaced Bakayoko, Mario Rui easily could have replaced Gulam, and Hisai could have replaced Di Lorenzo much sooner. This is going to sound crazy, but there's a part of me that genuinely thinks that Gattuso forgot there was a midweek game against Sassuolo. Next, I want to talk about Zielinski's goal that was ruled out. Before I explain why it didn't count, let me just say that this was a beautifully taken goal. Zielinski showed once again just how quick his feet are. With a quick step over and a drop of his shoulders, Zielinski had Yonita, Tuya, Depauli, and Barba all leaning the wrong way, which gave him the space to take the shot. It's unfortunate it didn't count because that would have been his third goal Lazio in as many matches. Unfortunately, Insignia had drifted in front of the goal, and the ruling was that Insignia obstructed the view of the keeper. That means Insignia is part of the play, and therefore he was in an offside position. For those who don't know, you don't need to touch the ball to be offside, so long as you're part of the play. The VAR review clearly showed that Insignia was perfectly in Montipo's line of sight when the shot was taken. I saw a lot of people saying that Montipo had no chance of stopping that shot anyway. 
I don't think that's necessarily true. If you watch the goal again, Zielinski didn't exactly pick his corner, but even if it is true, that's completely irrelevant, at least as far as how the rule is written. The fact is, Insignia was involved in the play, and therefore the officials got the decision right. The last thing I want to talk about is Fauzi Gulam. He had another excellent game coming off an excellent half against Granada. This has raised the question as to whether he should be the starting left back for the balance of the season. I genuinely think that no player crosses the ball better than he does. He showed that again in this match. He played some gorgeous corner kicks, including one in the second half that Koulibaly really should have scored. He's also a better decision maker than Mario Rui. How many times have we seen Mario Rui launch the ball over the bar when he probably should have passed? I talked about getting our wingbacks forward and cutting the ball back to the top of the box. We saw Gulam do this time and time again in this match. It was also really nice to see Gulam, Insigne, and occasionally Mertens playing together on that left wing. We haven't really seen that combination since the start of the 17-18 season before Gulam injured his knee. Finally, Gulam is a big body, which means he can help defend some of the bigger forwards in the league. Our good friend Prince Salad was a guest on the post-match Raf and Raf rant, and he made a great point about this. Maybe if Gulam was playing against Atalanta last weekend, then he might have done a better job than Mario Rui did defending Duvan Zapata. Now, Gulam had just returned from COVID, so he probably wasn't fit to start anyway, but the point is that in situations like that, Gulam is better equipped to defend than Mario Rui is. The one thing that has held Gulam back is he no longer has the pace that he once had. That is definitely still relevant. So what I'd suggest is the best approach is we use Gulam against teams like Atalanta, Milan, or Inter that have a big striker in a front two, and we use Mario Rui against teams like Sassuolo, Roma, Lazio who have more pace up top. In either case, that means that Gulam can become our backup left back. That means Alcide Cusai can go back to his natural position on the right side as the backup to Giovanni Di Lorenzo so we can give him a rest every once in a while. That will do for this review. In part 2, we'll check in on the top of the table. Sapeva parlare e tu mi hai imparata, tu mi hai imparata a cantare. Zitta, non saccio più, zitta gomma so fa, non saccio più, zitta gomma so fa, so fa. Zitta, non saccio più, zitta gomma so fa, non saccio più, zitta gomma so fa, so fa. In part 2, we'll check in on the clubs at the top of the table and how they did in round 24. 
Heading into this round, we were sitting in 7th place on 40 points. We were 13 points back of Inter and 9 points back of Milan. Juve were in 3rd on 45 points and Roma were 1 point back of them. Finally, Atalanta and Lazio were both on 43 points. So let's start with Lazio, who lost 2-0 to Bologna on Saturday. Ibrahim Mbai and Nicola Sansone scored the goals for Bologna. This match started out a little bit slow with a lot of niggling fouls breaking up the rhythm of the match. Other than a Sergei Milinkovic-Savage free kick and a Matthias Spamberg shot, little happened in the opening quarter of the match, and then the match took a dramatic turn. Lazio were awarded a penalty kick after Jaukan Correa went down in the area. Initially, it looked like a soft call and perhaps that he wasn't even in the area. However, the replay showed that Nicolas Dominguez did catch Correa's foot, and in fact, he was in the area, so the penalty was given. Chiro Immobile stepped up to take the penalty, but he was just a bit too casual and shot comfortably into the arms of Lukas Gorubski. Immobile has been playing through an injury and you have to wonder whether that had anything to do with the miss. It could also be because he is one goal shy of his 150th goal for Lazio. He was only able to play 65 minutes in this match and was fairly quiet for his standards. That miss was indeed costly. Less than two minutes later, Bologna opened the scoring Dominguez, Ricardo Orsolini, and Roberto Soriano did really well in the buildup. Orsolini got an excellent first-time shot off on the Dominguez cross, which Pepe Reina was unable to catch. The rebound fell for Ibrahim Mbai, who was only starting because Aaron Hickey was suspended. Mbai put the ball in the back of the empty goal to score his first of the season. Correa had an up-and-down performance for Lazio. He seemed to be involved in just about everything positive that Lazio did. As I said, he won the penalty in the first half. He also had a couple of shot attempts. At the same time, his decision-making was a little bit suspect, particularly on a counter-attack at the half-hour mark. Correa charged for it and had Manuel Lazzari wide open on his right, but instead he held on for just too long and then tried to pass to his left, but the pass was intercepted. Not surprisingly, Lazio had most of the ball in the second half. Bologna were content to defend, waiting for their chance to counter. Milinkovic-Savic in particular was not too happy that he wasn't awarded a penalty after going to ground inside the area in the 59th minute. Only 5 minutes later, Bologna doubled their lead with a beautiful goal that started with a throw-in. Soriano played a clever chip to Musa Barrow on the right side of the box. Most players wouldn't get to that ball, but Barrow is incredibly quick and managed to cut the ball back into the area. That's where Nicolas Sansone smashed his volley into the top corner of the goal. That was his second of the season, both coming after he returned from injury. Even though there was a good amount of time for Lazio to come back, you could sense that a comeback was just not in the cards. Perhaps Simone Inzaghi sensed that too because he immediately made a number of changes, including removing Chido Immobile and then 10 minutes later, he removed Luis Alberto as well. Other than a chance in stoppage time, Lazio didn't really have any quality chances for the balance of the match. A lot of that had to do with Adama Sumauro, who was really excellent for Genoa at the back. So once again, Lazio struggled to get a result when they play twice in the same week. Later in the day, Verona drew Juventus 1-1, Cristiano Ronaldo scored the Juve goal, and Antonin Barak scored for Verona. Early on, it looked like Juve might steamroll Verona. In the opening five minutes, Juve had Verona pinned in their own end. Aaron Ramsey came close to scoring, but his shot hit the outside of the side netting, and Federico Chiesa was looking very lively as well. But Verona managed to withstand the early pressure and nearly opened the scoring in the seventh minute. Matias Zaccani crossed the ball into the area, and Davide Faraoni flicked the ball on target, 
but Wojtek Szczesny got a hand on the ball and pushed it into the upright. That seemed to settle Verona down, and after that, they were able to frustrate Juventus, particularly with their team press. Verona's midfield worked hard to win possession and prevented Juve from getting into any kind of rhythm. They weren't giving Juve's midfield any time or space to pass the ball around, and truth be told, Juve's passing lacked the quality you would expect from a side coached by Andrea Pirlo. Add to that some dubious yellow cards to Ramsey and Matthias De Ligt, and you could see why a couple of half chances was all that Juve were able to create in the first half. The second half started very similarly to the first, with Juve bursting out of the gate and immediately putting pressure on the Verona back line, but this time they broke through. Only four minutes into the half, Cristiano Ronaldo opened the scoring with his 19th in Serie A and his 26th in all competitions. That play started with an excellent through ball from Ramsey to pick out Chiesa's run into the area, and then Verona made a cardinal sin of allowing Ronaldo to run into the area unmarked. Matteo Lovato was slow to react to the late run, and though Ronaldo's finish wasn't perfect, he did enough to beat Marco Silvestri. For a long while after that goal, it seemed like Juve were going to grind out an ugly 1-0 win, as they're prone to do, and with Morata, Artur, and Dybala still out, you can't really blame them for the approach, but in the 77th minute, Verona took their first chance of the half. The play started with a poor clearance from Mehdi Demaral straight to substitute Ronaldo Vieira. Juve were playing with a makeshift backline with Juan Cuadrado, Giorgio Chiellini, and Leonardo Bonucci all injured, and Danilo suspended. Verona quickly worked the ball to the left wing through another substitute, Miguel Veloso, and then to Zaccani, who played to another substitute, Mirko Lazovic, on the left side of the area. Lazovic played a gorgeous cross into the area, which Antonin Barak rose up to head over Alexandro and into the back of the goal. He's been a fantastic signing for Verona. That was his sixth goal of the season, which is good production from an attacking midfielder. And once again, you have to give Ivan Juric credit. All three of his substitutes to that point were involved in the build-up to the goal. Juve nearly paid for another turnover in the 85th minute. Chiesa lost possession in the middle of the pitch, and Verona countered with Lazovic on the wing. He carried the ball himself and fired on target, and for the second time in the match, Chesney tipped the ball off the frame of the goal and out. Neither team were able to score again after that, so this match finished in a 1-1 draw. With Juve and Lazio both dropping points on Saturday, Inter and Milan had the chance to pull further away from them, and Roma, Atalanta, and Napoli had the opportunity to gain some ground. Atalanta opened the action in the early game on Sunday. Giampiero Gasperini made a few changes to his starting 11. Marco Sportiello started over Gianluigi Golini in goal. Jose Palomino started over the suspended Veracim City, which is always a concern for Atalanta. And Luis Muriel started over Duvan Zapata, who didn't travel with the team due to a thigh injury. Once again, Gasperini himself was not on the touchline after he picked up a red card against Napoli, so his assistant Tullio Gritti coached in his place. Claudio Ranieri also made some changes to his squad. He started Valerio Vere and Antonio Lagumina up top over Fabio Quagliarella and Keita Balde, and early on it seemed to work. Sampdoria had three quality chances in the opening 20 minutes of the match, First, Sportello made an excellent save on Jakob Yanto after Palomino conceded possession at the top of his own box. Only a few minutes later, Sportello made another fantastic save on a Mikel Damsgaard free kick that was destined for the top corner. Then in the 20th minute, Sportello was bailed out by Palomino. Sportello attempted to punch out the Sampdoria corner kick but just barely got a touch on the ball. It fell for Yanto at the far post, but Palomino cleared the shot off the line. 
Unfortunately, Sampdoria didn't create much more than a couple of half chances early in the second half. After a couple of claims for penalties which were not given, Atalanta broke through. Ruslan Malinowski used that cannon of a left foot to fire past a helpless Emil Audaro and into the top corner. Atalanta thought they doubled their lead 5 minutes into the second half when Robin Gozins crossed for Joachim Mele. The Dane fired his volley past Audaro, but the goal was ruled off as Gozins was caught offside in the build-up. Atalanta did get their second about 20 minutes later, with the opposite combination of the goal that was disallowed. This time, Mele played the cross to Robin Gozins. Antonio Candreva had just come on the pitch and he did not see Gozins making the run behind him, and Gozins slid in for the goal. Matteo Piscina nearly added a third in the dying minutes of the match, but Audero got down with a strong hand to stop the shot that was destined for the bottom corner. In the end, it didn't matter though. Atalanta held on for the win and temporarily moved ahead of Roma for fourth in the table, level with Juve on points. Roma played Milan in the big match of the round. Milan won 2-1 on goals from Frank Kessie and Antti Rebic, while Jordan Bartu scored the lone goal for Roma. This was another really entertaining match with countless chances at either end of the pitch, and it did have a bit of controversy as well, though nowhere near as much controversy as the last time these two sides met. Milan got off to a really bright start. Zlatan Ibrahimovic had four clear-cut chances in the opening 10 minutes of the match. Paolo Lopez stopped the first two. On the first one, Ficayo Tomori actually scored on the rebound, but he was literally in the goal when the initial shot was taken, so he was clearly offside. On the third chance, Lopez slipped with the ball at his feet and Ibra pounced. Lopez did manage to get a touch on the ball, which was enough to force Ibra to backheel his shot and he missed the target. The final chance came after Gonzalo Villar conceded possession in the middle of the pitch to Frank Kessie. He played anti Rebic through on the left side of the box. Rebic was 1v1 with Lopez, but for some reason he elected to square to Ibrahimovic instead of taking the shot himself, and Ibrahimovic was offside. Credit to Milan though, they continued to press forward. They nearly went ahead in the 27th minute, but Simon Kair's header hit the bar and stayed out. Paul Lopez was incredibly busy. He made excellent saves on Rebic and Alexis Salamakers in the 33rd and 35th minutes, respectively. Eventually, Milan broke through, though, and once again, it was from the penalty spot. The penalty wasn't initially given, but a VAR review confirmed that Federico Fazio fouled Davide Calabria just inside the corner of the box. This was one of those calls where it was a foul and therefore it is a penalty, but it just doesn't feel right when a guy is fouled on the edge of the area, not really attacking, and when he's running toward the corner flag. Whether you thought it was a penalty or not, Milan certainly deserved to be ahead at that point in the match. Kessie got permission from Ibrahimovic to take the penalty, and he put it away very convincingly. Roma had their share of chances in the first half as well. About midway through the half, Jordan Bertu had an open shot, but he fired straight at Gigio Donnarumma. Roma's best chance of the half came in the 38th minute. Rick Karsdor played the ball through to Henrik Mkhitaryan, who got behind the Milan back line. He was 1v1 with Donnarumma, but chipped wide of the far post. Roma carried that momentum into the second half, and only 5 minutes into the half, Vertu equalized. He bent his shot around Simon Kair and Donnarumma, and tucked it inside the far post. That was Vertu's 10th goal of the season, which made him the first Frenchman to score double-digit goals in Serie A since Michel Platini. Shortly after that, Zlatan had to be removed from the match. He appeared to pick up a thigh injury in the first half and tried to play through it, but ultimately he could not. The silver lining was that, with Ibra off the pitch, 
Antti Rebic had the freedom to shoot again, and he took advantage of that only two minutes later. Rebic made a great turn at the top of the box to get past Gianluca Mancini before firing a rocket with his left boot past Paul Lopez. That goal started with another Roma mistake. Lopez played his pass straight to Calabria and two passes later, the ball was in the back of the goal. Calabria continues to have an excellent season for Milan at right back. I thought he had a fantastic match again in this one. Unfortunately, only a few minutes later, Rebic had to be removed as well as he picked up a hip injury. Paolo Fonseca responded by bringing on Stefan El Shirawi and once again he looked very good. Roma looked very dangerous in the final 20 minutes with most of their chances coming through Henrik Mkhitaryan. He had one chance with his left boot after turning Frank Kessie in the area but his bending shot missed the far post. Then we had the controversy I was referring to earlier. In the 79th minute Mkhitaryan again came close to equalizing on the counterattack, but Donnarumma made the save. The rebound fell for Teo Hernandez and it looked like Mkhitaryan won the ball clearly from Teo before being pulled down in the box. When the whistle blew, I thought for sure the penalty had been given, but instead the foul was called against Mkhitaryan for simulation and he was also shown a yellow card. Moments later, Rade Krunic nearly put Milan ahead by two with an audacious chip from near midfield, but Lopez retreated quickly and pushed the ball over the bar. Milan also felt like they should have been awarded a penalty in the 85th minute. Rafael Leao ran around Rick Karsdorp who appeared to get an arm up on Leao who went to ground. That was another close call and I can't help but think that the penalty wasn't given because Roma weren't awarded a penalty either. Roma fought right to the very last minute. Again, Mkhitaryan had a shooting opportunity after Krunic cleared the ball straight to the Armenian at the top of the box. Unfortunately, he shot straight at Donnarumma. That was the last chance either team had in the match, so once again, Roma lose to a top team. Meanwhile, this was a huge response from Milan after losing the derby the week before. With the win, Milan remained 4 points back of Inter and therefore they are very much alive in the race for the Scudetto. Finally, league leaders Inter beat Genoa 3-0 on goals from Romelu Lukaku, Matteo Darmian and Alexis Sanchez. Inter needed only 30 seconds to open the scoring. Nicolo Barella played the ball through to Romelu Lukaku. He played a quick 1-2 with Lautaro and then the big Belgian did the rest. This goal was very similar to the goal he scored against Milan where he picked up the ball around midfield took it himself and picked his corner. With the way Lukaku has been playing lately and scoring all season, I think he has to be a front runner for the league MVP. He seemed to be involved in just about every Inter attack. He had a few more efforts on goal in the first half, but Mattia Perin was up to the task. Perin was very busy in the first half. He made a fine save on Lautaro Martinez after some quick passing between Lukaku, Lautaro, and Barella. That trio has become absolutely deadly for Inter. Perin read the play and was well positioned to stop Lautaro's curling effort towards the far post. Lautaro has been in fine form lately. He said before the match that he plans on extending his contract with Inter and that Barcelona is in the past. We saw how that transfer weighed on him last season, so not having to worry about that anymore will certainly help his play and you can see that he's playing with a lot more confidence. He connected fully on an overhead volley in the first half, but the shot was straight at Perin. At the other end of the pitch, Samir Handanovic made the saves that he needed to make. He's in the best form of his season 
after a huge performance in the derby. He made a good save on Gianluca Scamacca early in the match, and around the half-hour mark, he made another excellent recovery. He came out to catch a Genoa corner kick and spilled the ball, which fell for Scamacca at the top of the box, but Handanovic made himself big and stopped the shot. The Inter players were calling for a foul on the play, but the replay clearly showed that Handanovic collided with Milan Skriniar, so there was clearly no foul. Even though Inter were clearly the better side in the first half, he felt like the 1-0 lead just wasn't safe against an informed Genoa side. That feeling didn't get any better when Davide Ballardini brought in ex-Inter player Goran Pandev. We saw what he can do against former clubs when Genoa played Napoli. But Inter got that all-important second goal. Matteo Darmian started on the right wing with Ashraf Hakimi suspended for this match and he made the most of it. He nearly scored in the first half after slicing into the area. His first touch was heavy but he got to the ball before Perin did, only to chip his shot just wide of the far post. Darmian did not miss the target in the second half though. Once again, it was Lukaku who carried forward before spotting a wide-open Darmian on the right side of the box. Darmian took his shot really well, hitting it first time across the face of the goal and into the bottom corner. That basically killed any hope that Genoa had of getting back into the match. Alexis Sanchez struck the final blow with his first touch after coming on as a substitute. Ivan Perisic, who has earned himself the regular starting role as left wing back, made a great play on the left wing before crossing into Lukaku in the area. Lukaku got a good touch on the ball to force Perin to make the save. The ball popped up for Jerome Onguenye, who did really poorly with his clearance. He had the ball straight to Sanchez and the Chilean head in his third of the season. The goal was initially disallowed for offside, but VAR reviewed the play and confirmed that Inter were in fact on. Even with the 3-0 lean, Inter continued to get chances. Credit to Perin for playing to the very end, he made an excellent save on Danilo D'Ambrosio's effort in the 88th minute. So Inter continued to plow forward, and with the win, they ended Genoa's unbeaten run at 7 games. Remarkably, that was only the second loss Genoa have suffered in their last 11 matches. So Inter remain at the top of the table, 4 points clear of Milan. With Lazio, Juve and Roma all dropping points, the next 5 places compressed even further. Only 3 points separate 3rd place Juve from 7th place Lazio. Juve are 6 points back of Milan on 46 points. With their win over Sampdoria, Atalanta pulled level with Juve on points. Roma are in 5th on 44 points and Napoli and Lazio are 1 point behind them. Sassuolo remain in 8th place despite not playing this weekend due to a COVID outbreak at Torino. We'll talk more about Sassuolo in part 3 when we preview our midweek fixture against them. Part 3 will do a quick preview of our match on Wednesday against Sassuolo. This will be the 8th meeting between these clubs to be played in Reggio Emilia. 
In the previous seven, Napoli won three, Sassuolo won one, and the remaining three resulted in draws. Just like Benevento, Sassuolo have been in really poor form in 2021. They have a record of two wins, three draws, and four losses in their last nine matches. I was under the impression that this drop in form was due to injuries, but when I checked the stats, Sassuolo actually haven't had too many injuries since returning from the winter break. Domenico Berardi missed four games with a muscular injury, and Sassuolo didn't win any of them. However, he did play in the last three, and Sassuolo still only won one of them, and that game was against Crotone. Jeremy Boga has missed the last two games with a thigh injury, but even when he was healthy, either Hamid Traore or Filip Juricic often started over him. Our last meeting with Sassuolo was one of our most disappointing performances of the season. The day before the match, we learned that none of Domenico Berardi, Ciccio Caputo, or Filip Juricic would be in the squad, but somehow we still managed to lose the match. We took a lot of shots, but never really tested Andrea Consigli. Manuel Locatelli scored from the penalty spot after a poor tackle by Giovanni Di Lorenzo in the area that was confirmed by the VAR. Then late in the match, Maxim Lopez put the game away with his first goal and only goal of the season so far. And the worst part of that match is for the better part of the second half, Sassuolo had more of the ball. That match ended Napoli's perfect start to the season. That was a disappointing result, particularly because of the players that Sassuolo were missing, but it was also in the middle of Sassuolo's impressive start to the season. They started the season undefeated in their first 8 matches, and they only lost 1 of their first 12 matches, with the 1 loss coming against a formidable Inter squad. So we definitely seem to be catching Sassuolo heading in the opposite direction as they were the first time we played them. Unfortunately, for the 3rd straight match in Serie A, we will be playing on short rest, while our opponent will have had the week off. First, we played Atalanta after a Europa League match, when they did not play midweek because the Champions League resumed the following week. Then we played Benevento after the second leg of the Europa League tie, when they did not play midweek because they're not in any cups. And now we play Sassuolo, who will not have played in 10 days because the match they were supposed to play on Friday was postponed after their opponent, Torino, had an outbreak of COVID. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Roberto De Zerbi typically lines up in a 4-2-3-1 formation with Andrea Consigli in goal. Gianluca Ferrari and Marlon are the preferred options at centre-back. Rogerio is the preferred option at left-back and Mert Muldur is the regular starter at right-back. Manuel Locatelli will start in the double pivot alongside either Francesco Magnanelli or Pedro Obiang. I think Magnanelli will get the start. With Jeremy Boga dealing with that thigh injury, Filip Juricic will play on the left wing and Maxime Lopez will cover Juricic in the 10 spot. Domenico Berardi plays on the right wing and Chicho Caputo plays at striker. For Napoli, I think we'll see a pretty similar lineup to the one that played against Benevento lined up in the 4-2-3-1. I do think David Ospina will return to start in goal over Alex Meret. With Kaladu Koulibaly suspended for this match, I think we'll see Nikola Maksimovic and Amir Rachmani start at centre-back. Kostas Manolas is very close to a return, but I think he needs a couple more days, so perhaps he returns for the Bologna match. With the pace of Sassuolo's front three, I think we'll see Mario Rui start at left back and Giovanni Di Lorenzo start at right back. There hasn't been too much talk about Diego Demis' status, so I think we're going to see Tiamoy Bakayoko and Fabian Ruiz again in the double pivot, but hopefully Demme is good to start instead. Lorenzo Insigne will start on the left wing and Matteo Politano will continue to start on the right wing while Chucky Lozano recovers from his injury. Piotr Zelinski will start again in the number 10 spot. 
And finally, I think we'll see Dries Mertens play again at striker. There were some concerns that he may have re-injured his ankle after he left the Benevento game with ice on the ankle. That's perfectly normal to put ice on a part of the body that was recently hurt. In fact, a lot of athletes take full ice baths after their matches. As far as I can tell, Mertens was a full participant in training on Tuesday as well. There certainly weren't any mentions of anything in the training report. On Monday, Victor Osiman's agent, William Davila, told Radio Kiss Kiss that Victor is just waiting for the all-clear from the medical staff to play, and he said he's been training with the team and is fit to play against Sassuolo, but he appears to be ruled out. So those are the starting lineups. Next, let's look at our three keys to the match. Our first key to the match is that we need to score at least two goals. Despite Sassuolo's poor run of form, they've still managed to score at least one goal in every match they've played this calendar year. In fact, they've only been shut out three times all season. Meanwhile, Napoli have been sound defensively at the Maradona, but this match will be played at the Mape Stadium in Reggio Emilia. Our defensive record has not been so great away from home. We've conceded at least a goal in each of our last seven away matches. The last clean sheet we recorded away from home was the 4-0 win over Crotone on match day 10, which was played on December 6th. We've also lost our last three away matches to Atalanta, Genoa, and Hellas Verona, and we've averaged three goals against over those three matches. Koulibaly only played in one of those three matches, the one against Hellas Verona, so I can appreciate why fans are concerned about Koulibaly missing this match. That means we need to do more than just score two, we also have to concede fewer than two. That's a good segue to our second key to the match, which is we need to stop Chicho Caputo. The best way to prevent Sassuolo from scoring more than one goal is to stop their best goal scorer. Caputo has already scored 10 goals on the season despite missing 5 games with a muscle injury. In fact, it's more like he missed 6 games because his first game back, he only came off the bench for about half an hour. He started the season really well, scoring 5 goals in his first 5 matches before picking up that injury. It took Caputo a while to find his form again after the injury, but he's been on fire lately. He scored 4 goals in his last 5 matches. Of course, you also have to worry about Domenico Berardi. He is second on the team in scoring with 8 goals. As I mentioned, Berardi has also missed time recently due to injury, so he's just getting back into form as well. The third and final key to the match is that we cannot shoot ourselves in the foot. More often than not, the goals we've conceded are the result of either poor decision making or poor defending. We've conceded goals because of poor passes by Rachmani, Maksimovic, and Bakayoko. Our communication at the back has been really poor, and we've ended up in situations where both of our center backs are marking the same player while another player is left unmarked. Or we end up with a mismatch with a fullback or even worse, a winger marking a much larger forward. This is of course a much greater concern with Maksimovic potentially back in the starting 11. He has really struggled this season. I think that is largely because he's played in the absence of Koulibaly and Koulibaly was probably covering up for Maksimovic's flaws when they played together. Off the top of my head, I don't recall too many issues at the back during the group stage of the Europa League. The goals we conceded there were typically on the counter-attack. The head official for this match is Valerio Marini. This is his first time officiating a Napoli match. His assistants are Sergio Ranghetti and Emmanuel Leprena. The fourth official is Lorenzo Maggioni and Paolo Mezzolani is on the VAR assisted by Giacomo Paganessi. For my prediction, I'm going to go with a 3-1 Napoli win. I'll give the Napoli goals to Dries Mertens, Lorenzo Insigne, and Piotr Zielinski. And for Sassuolo, I'll give the goal to Berardi. 
even though Benevento are Benevento, I think we're going to build off the momentum of that victory and carry it into this match. We saw in that match how important Dries Mertens is to this team and how much better players like Fabian, Zielinski and Insigne are when Mertens is in the squad. We played far more positively and though I generally don't have an issue with passing back to the keeper, we didn't do it nearly as often as we normally do. Knock on wood, but our fortunes appear to be turning on the injury front. Every game we seem to be getting another player back, and I don't think it's a coincidence that we're seeing the form we played with at the beginning of the season return as well. Even though we still play 3 Serie A matches in 8 days, I think a weight has been lifted from these players and Gattuso's shoulders, knowing that we only have to worry about Serie A. And finally, I think the Silencio Stampa has been a great help as well. People seem to have accepted that Gattuso will remain on until the end of the season, so those reports and the unnecessary stress they seem to add have subsided as well. So that will do for this preview, I hope you enjoy the match. That will also do it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends and give us a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. If you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod. We'll be recording another episode of Fortsanopoly Worldwide after this match, so stay tuned for that, and we'll be back with our regular episode later in the week. But until then... I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre. Network.